Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hello, this is Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. My guest today is Professor Michael Keith from Oxford University, who is co-director of the Oxford Programme for the Future of Cities, has uh, been the director of Peak Urban Research Programme, which is a collaboration of universities working together internationally across the globe, but particularly in the uh, urban south. Uh, he's the former director of the Centre on Migration, Politics and Society, but also, very interestingly, Michael has been the leader, the mayor, uh, of a major council in London. And so he has unique experience, it seems to me, both of running the city and the kind of trends and politics of the city, as well as being an expert on uh, race, migration and the urban south. So I'm very delighted to have a conversation with my very old friend and former boss, uh, Michael Keith. And uh, Michael, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Tim, um, in spite of all the challenges we face today. I know, there's quite a lot going on, actually. Uh, and uh, But we will be... Uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, uh, you know, optimistic to a fault about some very good stuff that uh, you've been into and doing. I, I also, I, when I introduced you, I, I pointed out that you were an unusual figure in that you were a, kind of an academic in politics or a politician in academia. I, you, you will explain to me, um, but you've, you were at one point when I first met you. Now, my goodness me, over 20 years ago, you were an academic and the leader of a major London council in East London. So we're going to talk about all that. I made a major mistake by being an anthropologist that decided to study local government and then... Oh, is that what happened? What's called participation, participant observation, where you actually get involved and ethnographically close to your subject of study. It got a bit mixed up. Did you never intend to become a, a politician or did that just happen? It was a little bit of an accident. The participation and the observation got a bit um, the other way around. Well, we shall talk about that. We'll come back to that. But for, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about what you're up to at the moment with this really important international initiative with universities coming together and others called PEAK. Could you explain what that is? It's actually PEAK Urban, which is a, a play on a very obvious uh, link to, to, to PEAK Oil in a sense, but it's a, more straightforwardly, it's actually a way of trying to link academic scholarship and practice in cities. So it does involve universities from the UK, the University of Oxford and parts of Oxford in, in medicine, in transport, in data analytics, uh, but also it involves um, cities and universities globally in Colombia, India, China, and South Africa. And in each case, what we're interested in doing is actually trying to help cities make better decisions about their future by understanding their future, trying to link together the kinds of scholarship that we can produce today with ways of thinking and ways of acting that produce better cities for most people, um, sometimes successfully and um, sometimes facing challenges like COVID that we were surprised by. Um, I, well, I have to ask you what the agenda was, either at the beginning or what it became uh, with PEAK. And then some studies, what kind of did you focus on? In a sense, I think to go back a little bit, the, the, the PEAK is, is actually an, an acronym. The P, the E, the A and the K are a, a way of thinking about cities. The P stands for prediction. And we, we know that cities now produce vast amounts of data in real time from the people that walk through mass transit systems to the, what you can see from a space station through to extraordinary ways of thinking about new forms of data that are emerging from cities producing 
uh, information about themselves. And but we also know that, that the E actually stands for emergence, a sense that we know that cities are a place where newness comes into the world. Things change in cities. People have new ideas. They rub up against each other. New economies de develop. And the A is actually about how part of that is structured by the adoption of new technologies. So obviously, the world online changes the way we think about working, the way in which autonomous vehicles are changing, the way we're thinking about uh, moving through cities, mass transit changes the way we... So technology changes cities, and so that's one strand. And the K of the, of the PEAK is about knowledge exchange. And so we are not interested in academics that work in silos on the one hand and uh, city professionals that, that ignore the data on the other hand. We're actually trying to think about how you build bridges across these forms of, of, of knowledge production and practice to, to make a difference. So, so the, the, the programs worked in, as I say, in India, Colombia, China, and South Africa, in each case, trying to think about how these new forms of working might actually make a difference on the ground. And uh, we can talk through many examples of that. Did I hear you sort of say that actually there is no European uh, participant, as it were? You, you are an Oxford University participant. Does that mean you didn't study stuff in the UK? It's a, it's, it's a genuinely kind of international, outside the UK kind of stuff. In this particular programme of work, that, that that's the case. Although, interestingly, one of the things that it built on, for before we started the Peak Urban Programme, I used to run the main social science research council in the United Kingdom, as some people will, will, will know, is called the Economic and Social Research Council. And uh, I, I, I kind of never believed in having less than two or three jobs to do. And one of the jobs I did for a while was to run their cities program of research, which was actually co coordinating, organizing the, the, the funding of re research. And one of the, the principles we adopted there when uh, over four or five years was that we worked at a UK scale, but also at a European scale, because this was before Brexit, and also at, at, uh, globally. And at the European scale, I think one of the lessons we learned was the advances, particularly in mainland Europe, about what are known as urban labs and observatories and the ways in which one of the main bridges you, you can make work and make work much better is, is links that are outside the university, outside City Hall, but linked to both. Uh, and the, 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 uh, the European scale, in the EU in particular, the urban living labs and urban labs movement is actually quite strong, uh, predictably, um, in social democratic context. So, I mean, so the two dimensions I want to talk about for, on this part of it, you know, um, I always like people celebrating their greatest hits. So I shall ask you about the, the greatest peak hits, as it were. But um, what what services or what activities in cities did you tend, have you tended to focus on um as with the other one is about the hookup between academia and the the political process of managing a, a city uh, how how have you have you been able to do the the latter so what what kind of things have you been focusing on in your research well if we start off with the, the point i was making a, a second ago i'll give you a couple of examples from each of the countries we're working in if you've in colombia it's a country that is kind of notorious for narco tourism and all sorts of negative things but actually it's a country that has risen um, over the last couple of decades to being a middle-income country from a lower-income country by World Bank classifications. And one of the ways it's, it's done that is by having, in some cases, in, in Bogota, but also in Medellin, where we worked, very inventive ways of thinking about how cities might change. So Medellin was somewhere where we worked, where um, people sometimes talk about city, one of the things that distinguishes cities being 
where systems meet other systems. They're sometimes described as systems of systems. What we often talk about in, our, in the Peak Urban Program is, is, is the power of cities to drive change, as opposed to debates about city powers. And what that, what that means in very practical terms is if you look at Medellin, you had a, uh, a, a history of enormous conflict between narco crime gangs and um, militias, basically, against them, which was actually brought not entirely under control. It's not a kind of perfect world, but that, that split between the richest and the poorest was in part bridged at one stage by a transport system that ran initially to introduce a, um, a, a cable car system as a tourist attraction. But the cable car system actually was then uh, brought in to actually link up the barrios of, of the higher areas of, of, of the city with, with the, the formal city down below. The person who was in charge of that was one of our partners um, in, in, in Peak Urban. And what, what, what happened in that case was, was that they used um, an intelligence about how you linked up the poorest parts of the city with the, with the richer parts of the city to also build at the, at the intersections of the cable car system, a welfare system. So the, the intersections of the, the cable car system, you didn't have tourists going up and down, but you had a library, you had a sexual education centre, you had um, schools, you had... So you actually brought together um, the, the city and that in it in turn produced uh, a flow of investment into, into Medellin. The Medellin actually had a long-standing history of old old-style manufacturing, but you also get an upskilling and upgrading and a, a technological change. So produced by, by this, this interface. Now, what, what that meant was that the city itself was always open to new ways of new ways of thinking, new ways of, of, of thinking about its future. So to give just a couple of examples from Colombia, one of the things that, that we, we did was, um, or our partners who are in the Airfeet University in a, a group called the uh, Research in Spatial Economics, that they they gathered big data from the growth of cities across the whole of Latin America using satellite technology to to begin to develop a model where where you could predict the the the, the morphological growth of cities in other words the physical shape of cities and the way that they might grow um, in such a way that that you could predict the land use uh, as well as the challenges of land use and so they developed a, a model that uh, they they patented the the uh, intellectual property and and sold it and worked with the major infrastructure pro providers in Colombia so that what you can actually do is is that the infrastructure providers can be begin to put in the, the 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 pipes and the plant ahead of the expansion of cities because the expansion of cities in much of Latin America is drawn by driven by informal settlements by people occupying land building their own houses and so you get a much more rational interaction between the modeling of cities based on you know, millions and millions and millions of pieces of data drawn from across the whole of Latin America, working through sophisticated modeling techniques to think about where the most logical uh, growth will be in the context of very specific landscapes. Um, another example we did was, was use... We, we used access to telephone uh, records, again, several million telephone records during lockdown to, to examine different methods of lockdown in, in Colombia and Medellin in particular to work out which were most effective because you could actually trace which, bluntly, how many people were breaking lockdown at different different times during the COVID pandemic. And, and again, you could model you could model the way the, 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 the um, city was working, produce 
almost a digital twin of the city to, to kind of then inform the, the policy during lockdown itself and many benefited. Now, that last bit is the bit that interests me, is that your point about informing the policy, because what I don't know is the link between this data gathering exercise and this intelligence, this urban intelligence, and the political process of Medellin, right? Or the So was there an attempt or is there a, was there a formal interrelationship inter with the the city council? Uh, how does that? How does the governance of this stuff work? So, so the two groups we worked with in, in Medellin, one was is known as Urbam, uh, and that was run by uh, somebody called Alejandro Echeverri, who is a, a, an architect and planner, who was the person who was was responsible for the cable car system that, that has been much much lauded. And because of, I mean, bluntly, personal contacts, there was a way into City Hall. But also we had a flow of the, the team. One of the team, actually one of the Urbam team, got halfway through the research project. He ended up being moved into City Hall as the head of the transport system in, in, in Medellin. Um, we had meetings with the mayor during lockdown that research in spatial economics. The RISE team were called into City Hall by the mayor of Medellin in order to understand what was going on in lockdown because... because as we know, a lot of policies were extemporized in cities across the world during lockdown because people were facing something they'd never seen before. So you needed people to react quickly who could use data adeptly and try and model alternative ways of what was happening with different forms of policy implementation. You you might have come across either accidentally or intentionally the evidence-based policymaking of a kind that I think was quite rare during COVID, but uh, I think this is a, a model. Um, in the other cities that you've worked in and studied, did you try and get the same interrelationship with the political process? Similarly, I mean, I, I've talked mostly about um, the case in Colombia, but I could give you other examples in the very different context of China, South Africa and India, and it kind of almost running through one at a time. With China, a couple of examples, very quickly, I don't want to kind of give you every... No, but it's interesting, Michael, because we rarely talk about these cities, you know, and I think that's part of why I wanted to talk to you, because... You know, we, you know, even me, and I'm trying to do it differently. I've still got a bit of a kind of historic relationship with European cities or American cities and Australian cities, but not Asian cities and not South America. So this is very important, I think. Well, give a couple of examples in China. One of the things that happened in China during the the, the pandemic, your listeners will be aware that China has a what sometimes described as a floating population. The the uh, the the Nongmingong or Ludong or Renku in 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 Mandarin the, the the people who don't have rights to to be citizens of the city they don't have rights to welfare and people immediately assumed that the spread of COVID in China was so rapid because the floating population was transient mobile and were frequently blamed for um, the, the early stages of COVID but some of the first research that was done through peak urban actually traced the patterns of um, mobility on uh, this kind of scale of several hundred million people, looking at that at the same time as we f we traced uh, the, the the DNA of the virus itself and the movement of people. And to be blunt and simplifying things a little bit, the, the, the spread of COVID was more through business travel uh, in China than it was through the, the, the poorest infor informal groups, because, of course, you only needed, as, as we've now found through the traces historically of the virus in in Europe, you, you know, you need a few thousand people coming from the ski slopes of Italy to spread the virus into France and the UK in, in the early stages. Of, so, you know, few numbers produce very large 
distributions and it was actually the mobility of of, of the of the business classes that was driving that and that would fed directly into policy in china a couple of cases in uh, south africa where you have a very different urban context obviously where the majority of people in cities like cape town and joburg are frequently living in squatter settlements on the periphery of the the the, the, the city one a couple of the projects that we did that did have immediate impact one was working very closely with people in those squatter settlements different ways of generating knowledge actually generating knowledge through more through anthropological traditions getting close to people understanding how their lives worked to understand how the introduction of clean water which is massively important in for all sorts of reasons not least in terms of public health of course the the, the introduction of clean water demands not just a kind of a geographical spread across uh, these very large areas of, of squatter settlements, but also an understanding of the dynamics on the ground, the community activism, the, the gangs and the control of certain territories so that you actually needed to uh, work sympathetically with very challenging local context on the ground to try and make a difference when you were trying to improve public health through the supply of water. At a different, at a different level of uh, abstraction, at the same time, as you have, you know, these very, very basic problems of of hygiene and public health, you also have, again, a very mobile population across southern Africa that traditionally has shifted money through remittances, which is, as the World Bank will tell you, remittances are one of the main drivers of economic change. Is that right? Well, basically, as people move money from richer parts of the world through, back to poorer parts of the world, that generates the capital to provide economic development. Now, now there are all sorts of long-standing systems like the Havala system by which people have moved money across the world through migration. But we now live in a digital age. So one of the studies that we, we, we looked at was the, was the spread of new forms of, of digital movement of remittances into South Africa, but also out of South Africa from the populations that were living in South Africa, uh, back to other parts of sub-Saharan sub -Saharan Africa. So you begin to understand that the economy is changing through these very small tweaks of technology. I'll give you one example from, from India, or maybe two very quick examples. We, we also looked at the ways in which, if you look at, people go to India and they think of the rickshaws and the the, the ways in which you know the rickshaws is almost some sort of quaint curiosity, but the the the, the rickshaws themselves have moved into digital, digital currency now, which changes the way people work. It changes the platforms through which people are employed, and it changes the distribution of of, of workers so that what looks like an informal transport system can actually become a very high tech high tech system very quickly through the emergence of digital platforms. And so how that works is important for the city to understand. Uh, when, when you think about a city like Delhi, where we were working, and Bangalore, where we were working also. And another example that we did in, in, in Bangalore was one of the principles we had of our researchers was that they were themselves mobile. Many of them worked in the private sector or in city hall in different places. And one of our, our team in Bangalore came out of the property development sector to work on research on land value capture in Bangalore tied to mass transit and how that worked slightly differently to in India to say well Australia or mainland Europe so that you could actually think through what worked and what didn't work with forms of land value capture that have been tried in Bangalore. Well I love all this and I, I it leads me actually to an interesting question about can you make comparisons between cities and indeed have you made comparisons between cities. And I'll go a bit further about that. The, uh, so we've heard quite a lot already about the differences of 
cultures, of morphologies, of political management processes, or perhaps even of the link between political management of a city and the university sector. You know, there's all sorts of differences, language differences, settlement differences, all that kind of stuff. Is the notion of the of the city as as uh, being shared by all these just unreal? If they, you know, that uh, you know, and when people attempt, like one of our good mutual friends, I suspect. Uh, Greg Clark, it was brilliant that doing comparisons, you know, and doing benchmarking, whether the sheer individuality and the stuff we don't know uh, makes them so different that actually these these comparisons are are futile. What do you think about the the comparative city stuff, and have you been able to extract some common themes from all this? Comparison is is, is a, a dodgy word in in some ways because if you compare, you you tend to kind of try and erase difference and identify similarity uh, and in, in a sense what what i think you see is apart from cities being incredibly exciting it is is that it is it is the unique nature of different places that excites us all and that's why we travel that's why we go to different places but that doesn't mean that there aren't universal forces working in all of these different places so that the trick of all of this is how, is how do you recognize the interplay between the universal forces that are shaping cities in different parts of the world and the historical and geographical specificities that that are making them exciting and and different in 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 particular ways now i think most straightforwardly, what what that means is that we can we can recognise the systems that bring um, that come together in the city, and that make what's what makes you know you you know that that, that the mobilities of city change the ways that the economy works, but it also changes the way that that public health is public health is delivered. So you know even a small device like a defibrillator, you just take one example off the top of my head. A, a, you know, a, a defibrillator that, that used to be a great big device that sat in hospitals. Now, in many places, starting in Tokyo, but spreading across the world, you get defibrillators in every station, every shop, in all precisely because the way in which which health is delivered is um, a product of how you think about patients on the one hand and big lumps of real estate uh, on on the other. What that means is the interface between mobility systems and public health systems is really important universally across the world in how we think about how cities are partly structured by uh, the, by uh, the way that government city governments think about public health. But then that, that relationship, which is partly about mobility in the United Kingdom, what someone I used to work as um, a non-exec director at a foundation trust hospital and the, the head of medicine made a very sound point that if you look at the history of the national health service in the uk at any one time you can have a real the, the perfect distribution of real estate for the particular technology of public health I, normally if you go back 50 60 years a lump of hospital and then patients who access the hospital they access a doctor the technologies have multiplied massively in the last 50 years, so you need a much more refined hierarchy, which means that the, your, the, the system of the number of hospitals you've got and the people you've got is always out of sync. You can never catch up into a perfect equilibrium. But that tension between, so you know what that means in the UK is you've probably got too many hospitals, although people aren't allowed to say that. And what you need is different kind of. You actually need to have different forms of health at your old GP practice, but you don't need old GP practices. You need different scales of you know where do you have your MRI scanners? Where do you have your you know what scale do you have cancer care? There are multiple scales rather than just a simple binary scale, which makes. You, if you're a politician and you try and close a hospital, you lose your seat in a democracy. 
that's slightly different in China for all sorts of obvious reasons. So the tensions between the te tensions that, that that sit between mobility systems and health systems are universal. The way they are realised is very different in China from the way they're different that you would find in in London or Cape Town in different ways. And so, I think what, what the heart of what what we try and do is recognise those universal forces, but see how those interfaces between the different systems play out differently in different cities. And that's what gives you your different models of your China model or your European social democratic model or the, or the you know the the um, the power of the American model that that is both incredibly dynamic economically and incredibly turbulent socially. I think I must be right. It's a, it's the the interplay of globalized forces and technology, I guess, uh, with um, idiosyncratic you know from below. It's like to top down globalization going on, bottom up responses to that shaping that you know based on history geography everything i mean i come from a part of the world which um in south wales which is more or less created by the the requirements of the atlantic economy you know and the the uh, we used to end up getting our copper from south america um and our labor from somerset you know to uh, to and then global forces changed and and actually led to a shrinking of the of the kind of economic dynamism of those areas so i'm very i'm very kind of into um, what global forces do and how people respond to them. But here's one thing I want to ask you about. And then I want to go to your career, because it's fascinating that you're an academic in the kind of global city uh, data space, but you've also been a serious politician at a high level, managing a very important part of London at a critical moment, actually, in its history. And I really do want to talk about that. But what I was going to say was, how about this? This is uh, a bringing together of in uh, uh, international city difference, um, and 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 then the response to lockdowns, hybrid, hybrid working. Here's here's a, it's recent data done by McKinsey. It's reasonably it feels okay. You know, I mean, I'm sure there are questions we can have about it, but basically shows that in U.S. cities there's been like 45 to 50 percent return to the office, right? In uh, which is quite low actually, and it, and is really quite stubborn, right? Then you've got uh, kind of. London, 60%. Sydney, 60%. You go up to Brisbane, it's about 75%. But you go to Seoul, and it's like 100%. And you've got, like, uh, you've got emerging a kind of large return to the office in some Asian city context, medium return to the office in some European context, and a low return to the office in American context. Ha really, in my view, having long-term effects on the way those cities will, will work out. Um, but it's, a, it's a, I guess, a, a case study to come of uh, you know what the implications of COVID and, and the management of it were on our city performances. Do you have any thoughts about this stuff at the moment? I mean, it's like too early to tell, really. But I mean, are you, what do you think about all that? I think it is too early to tell, but also I think you can. It, it, it's following the principles I just outlined a second ago. I think you, we need to look at the interfaces of what, in that particular case, is the places people work and the places people live. Uh, and, you know, bluntly, in, in a suburbanized American context where you have long journeys into work and big homes you can work in. Exactly. And a lot of people working in places at home. Now, you compare that where if you're in somewhere like Shanghai or Beijing or Seoul, where you've got massive rapid economic development models of extraordinary power, they tend to be accompanied by highly dense um, living conditions 
where frequently in in Seoul you don't have such real estate to live in in the nice comfortable suburbs. So th there's something about this that is just about how we think about the configuration of where people live and whether it's a nice place to, to work. But also, I, th I, th I think what we will also see is a, a gradual change in the kind of sectoral uh, model around this. So I think there are some long-term secular trends. And, you know, as an academic, I've worked almost all the time, partly at home significantly, because I'm lucky enough to have a study in, in, in which to work, but also kind of value both long distance um, online contact like this, this call itself. But also you can't detract from the fact that you know we've been working recently i might come back to this we've been working recently in in uh, dhaka and delhi and you can have conversations about the way in which the the the, the city works online but you can't really have proper interaction until a you go to places and see how see what's happening and b you spend time as we've all suffered through um both the benefits of you know all those on zoom calls zoom conferences zoom information sessions that linked us globally but we all know that you have the coffee breaks you didn't have the beer afterwards you didn't have the informal discussion that was actually got beneath the presentation to have a real understanding about what people were really saying and develop trust between people so without the trust relations without understanding getting below the powerpoint you, you will never know anything about any, anywhere and you'll never innovate in, in a business until you trust people enough. All that is absolutely, it's music to my my ears, by the way, because I'm finding this amazing reluctance to understand agglomeration economics. Sometimes described as the demons of density, right? <laughs> the demons of density do give us the kind of drivers of change. Yeah, and I'm and I'm gripped by the idea that if they're only back 50% in US and 60% in Europe and it's... Uh, and it's 90% in Asian cities, I, I feel agglomeration economics might work to their benefit whilst we're still at home waiting to have our jobs replaced by them, you know. So I, I, I think there's a bit of that going on. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series. Now, we need to pursue the, the link between your academic interests and your, and your political interests, because that is very unusual. Um, and, and my way there, partly, is to is to be skeptical slightly about the link between data and city management and I'll come at it uh, from it's, it's a bit like a subset of the smart city discussion which I've always been very interested in very you know in favor of like a data-driven city I, I you know because you know what what's the alternative right you know the alternative strikes me as, as worse than the data you know but I sort of don't I've not seen very much of it in my you know 30 odd years wandering around urban you know, I've not seen very much. Sort of, in fact, smart city stuff sort of sort of was like hobbyist. It never really became quite central to the to the management process of a of a, like of a, a big city authority. You know, we you have some services which have been very you know they've had their business processes transformed by by data and and digital platforms, and that's all kind of happening. But I, I still haven't quite seen the kind of you know the 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 management process of the city as a whole. And the way which data feeds into the decision making of the political process, I, I'd like you to tell me: Do you, do you think that's that's where it's all going to go, and or is it, or is it kind of a feels like a neoliberal technical nightmare to me? Because I'm a big believer, having worked with you in East London, in the random leadership of great human beings. <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, don't disagree. And of course, predictably, I, I do disagree. And I think that the devil is in the details. So we we have we have data we we have data ad nauseum, and we have dashboards ad nauseum. And city dashboards, I, I'm skeptical about for reasons I'll come back to. But also, the um, a, a kind of governance by data is something that is is not straightforward for a very very simple reason, which is why I prefer cities that are intelligent to cities that are smart to having kind of a techno technocratic technologically kind of modeled city um is it doesn't really work the the, the game sim city it used to be quite popular and one of my students pointed out that the only problem with sim city is you could have a riot but not a revolution so if you messed up your finances you you you, you would have a riot and you'd lose points <laughs> but you'd never turn over the, the, the government but that was that was a long time ago. The more the more straightforward and simple point, actually, to be honest, informed the peak urban project down the line, was that if you sat in any city hall in the UK, in frankly any time in history, but in the time that we were working together in the 1990s and early 2000s, you you walked into city hall and central government quite often have a degree of contempt for local government, which I find deeply odious. And the reason for that is that there are a lot of people who are very decent, uh, quite often don't go to the top public schools and go to the, through the elite uh, civil servants uh, departments in, in the heart of government and instead kind of work their way through forms of profession that are not uh, always credentialized in, in ways that are glorified. So the things like planning, things like accountancy, things like public health. But if you actually go into town, I used to say this is a metaphor, but it is almost literal that you go to one floor of City Hall and you will have the finance department and they, they actually see the territory that they govern through its financial value, the value of property, the returns on uh, the returns on investment, the, the kind of um, uh, the, the changes that, that, that might be produced by, by value capture. You go to another part, you go to the social services department and they will see a demography that is has a propensity to be ill and to wipe out all your budgets by demands on social care. And you go to somewhere else and you'll have um, the development control people who like building Lego. So, so literally, these are forms of expertise that are real, but they're forms of expertise that aren't always commensurable. So you, actually respecting the fact that your planners, your public health officials, your community safety and police officers, that they, they literally see the territory through different forms of expertise, different measures, different dashboards, and different ways of working. So the skill of all of this, which comes back to your point, Tim, I think, which is, is, is partly about the, 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 the governance of those officials and those perspectives and bringing them, bringing them together in ways that uh, recognise that they have different drivers. You know, it, was, it is quite a common uh, facet of almost any city hall that you know, people think that the, the, the main challenges are between the politicians of left or right or whatever spectrum we're talking about. But quite often it's the housing department trying to screw over the social services department or the, the planners trying to kind of trump the finance department. And, and so those those kind of power struggles at best are at worst, sorry, are at best seen if you can actually kind of recognise that, that there are different ways of seeing the city that are actually the drivers of local government. And you have to kind of try and bring some sorts of polyphony or harmony where, where there was that where there are different voices, frankly. So I think that's crucial, you see, because I think that what you've nailed is that there are trade-offs that somebody has to make. Exactly. Right? Trade-offs is, is the, the key term. And, and then accountability for them. 
you know, the, 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 for me, the, the, the kind of technocratic neoliberal universe of data speaking for itself misses out the entire democratic process and, 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 and the, the real world need for someone to arbitrate, you know, between incommensurate, incommensurate goods. Absolutely. If, I, if I'm in public health, I measure my success by the numbers of lives I've saved. If I'm in development control, I measure, you know, my data is the quality of buildings. It's very interesting, but slightly controversially, you know, I would say when the history books come to write COVID management up in there, they will say the use of a single metric, right? The idea that, that uh, you know, we had to reduce case numbers or whatever it is and not think about the economic consequences, not make choices. In a sense, that whole arbitration trade-off stuff failed, uh, whereas in, in local government... Every day was about and is about these trade-offs. And I want to come to that via, uh, how about this? Uh, I, I love this as a paradox of the smart city stuff. I went to, once went to Barcelona, the mobile phone congress, and there was a great moment where I suddenly realised there were like 40,000 people there and they were all talking to each other rather than you know, phoning each other at the mobile phone congress. They were all like physically there trading ideas and talking to each other, which I thought was a great kind of you know, symbol of the, the reality of, the, of this thing. You know? but, but also that, they, that there was some guy get up, and I've never forgotten this. He said there's four levels to this data problem. He says at the bottom is data, the next level up is information, the next level up is knowledge, and the next level up is wisdom. And I thought, bloody hell, that, that's completely right. But the political process kicks in slightly towards the knowledge and wisdom yeah. uh, side of it, right? We're not just interested in data. Somebody has to turn that into something that looks like knowledge and wisdom and then action and then go out and be voted down, you know, by people out there. And I have tremendous respect. Let's go to this, right? So I met you. God, uh, so I, I was... Let's put it in context. I was chief executive from about from ninety eight to two thousand and three of the Thamesgate with London Partnership, which is ten or twelve councils. It varied, you know, to the east of London, and Michael was on the active in the Thames Gateway, but was leader of Tower Hamlets, one of the main councils, and it's a fascinating one near Docklands, Canary Wharf, a hugely diverse community with a big Bangladeshi population. Come back to your earlier point, whose income reshaped a region. In Bangladesh, you know, and, so, and they became politically powerful, if I remember, yeah. uh, in like two in two countries, uh, which I think is a really really interesting point. You, uh, for a while, either did were the leader or were very influential in the leadership of this amazingly you know important council at a critical time, and then I met you and you became chair of the of my partnership. So you were my boss, and I I was I hope you will assure people I was polite, I was differential. I uh, I always obeyed instructions. I'm not quite sure about obeying instructions, but <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So let's talk about Tower Hamlets. Let's talk about Tower Hamlets. Could you position Tower Hamlets when you when you became leader for people who don't even know where it is and we don't don't know the era we're talking about? It's in many ways by the early 1990s, Tower Hamlets was about to change in a way in which East London was was following. Uh, shortly, shortly afterwards, I think that that we one of the things we talked about about what is universal and what's what's not is obviously economies change, and that there was an old industrial economy, particularly in the River Lee. People forget that the East End was has always been a site of turbulence, but also it was a site. Alexander Parks actually put his first. Um, he was the person who introduced plastics to the world. His his and his first 
Xylonite was his his company that was the kind of first uh, plastics factory in the river along the River Lee, and plastic the River Lee was actually for a while that the plastic centre of the British British Empire. You ended up by the post war period with a great big industrial landscape that was a the, the employment had left the country, b the, the the land was polluted, and a lot of it was also bombed out. So there was a, a legacy of uh, deindustrialization, a, a new economy emerged particularly around the financial services that you had in Tower Hamlets in the west of the borough, as you, you pointed out, you had this, the city of London that was growing, kind of flexing its muscles, trying to move slightly eastwards into places like Spitalfields and Wapping. Uh, for those who remember, Wapping was the place where Alf Garnet was the kind of white residual working class um, figure who, who was kind of culturally significant in the 1960s but you also had a new financial district emerging in Canary Wharf which rose and fell and rose and fell a couple of times it had come through in part of Michael Heseltine's revival of the 1980s of, of, of Docklands but had then gone bust once came back again had financial strains so it's, it's just come and gone as the commercial property market has come and come and gone but was it was a, a massive employer already by the early 1990s and growing very rapidly but also the population was changing which also ties into what what, what we um were saying a second ago if you go back to 1991 the population in Tower hamlets was about 100 and 180 odd thousand by 2001 it was about 200,000 um in 2021 in the sense the same territory it was about 310,000 so it almost it almost um doubled but you could see this happening not least because what 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 used to be the case if you go back to victorian uh, London, when momentarily London was the biggest city in the world, the same territory, it was called different things because there was, you know, what they called son, sons, brothers and cousins. You used to have Stepney Borough Council, Poplar Council. The, these are, You had a different governmental landscape. But if you look at that same territory, the population was about 350,000. So it diminished massively through deindustrialization, suburbanization and slum. Uh, slum redevelopment basically but um, the population by today has now gone back to Victorian levels of density but with, you could see in the 1990s that London was beginning to turn eastwards and we can talk more about that in the in the gateways well let's do that but before we just to put position this right so you were you were you were heavily involved in a big transition right of of economic activity and demographic change and culture shift uh, at the heart of East London um, and that at the same time, there was like globalization forces, uh, you know, managed locally. What you became, you became the leader of the council, this very diverse population. What, what were the, give us two or three challenges of, of, the, of, the, of that moment? I, I think that the, 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 two, the two challenges that were, were, I would say, were stark was that at one moment in time, there was, a, there was data produced that showed that the the highest the, the the median income in other words those people who were in employment um had uh some of the highest levels of income in the country and at the same time the average income was the lowest in the country so in other words by some measures it was the most unequal place in income terms in the whole of, whole of the uk you you also had successive histories of migration where at times that those forms of migration 
are incredibly productive in producing new forms of cultures, new forms of cuisine. You know, the, the, in the cliche term, the, the Brick Lane was the, by the 1990s, the curry capital of, of the UK. The chicken tikka was the new British British normal. And if you go back, you know, there's always been a culture of fusion in the East End of London. That fish and chips, think people think fish and chips is a very British thing, but fish and chips actually brings together Jewish traditions of gefilte fish with uh, Huguenot traditions of pommes frites and Irish traditions of, of potato uh, eating. That that you know, so it, it is itself a fusion of different cultures. That, so that cultural change has always been productive, but it also has generated conflict. So in the time that I was involved in politics, we got we got bombed several times. We got bombed three times by the IRA, two city bombs and a bomb in, in the Canary Wharf. We got bombed by the Islamic extremists in 2005, the 7th of July. And then again, two weeks later, there was a Somali bomb on Hackney Road that didn't go off. But we also got bombed by the far right. There were, the, the, people rem remember the the far right bomber who took place. So you, you, the, the, the social strains alongside that those forms of inequality were taking place at a time when, as you said, that you, you might almost think of Tower Hamlets as a, as a triangle. On the west, you had the city of London, the, the booming financial district post the big, big bang. In, in the southeast, you had the old Isle of Dogs, which had places like at one stage, it had the largest um, umbrella manufacturing uh, uh uh, site in in the whole of the, the whole of the world. Of course, ma umbrella manufacturing actually was still there in the 1990s, but was in China by uh, kind of mid 1990s. And, and you had the kind of Canary Wharf development, and then you had the Lower Lee Valley, and the which was itself this, as I say, this relic of London ma manufacturing. So you had the, these extraordinary patterns of deindustrialization and redevelopment. So property development pressures alongside forms of gentrification which meant that property prices were going through the roof so the tensions were enormous but the opportunities were also pretty significant at that time and so yeah one of the things i would say in terms of greatest hits we did develop a model of, of saying that that population was going to grow and one had to think about how one might have forms of value capture that that sewed the the new borough together ra rather than actually um kind of split the borough into into a kind of a, a polar division between rich and poor black and white to cut to the chase for those people who don't know this kind of context and by the way australian local government is just not as strong and within sydney it's not as it hasn't got as many powers it's not as muscular and it doesn't really um get the deal out of the development process that people like you were focused on um, but, you know, so that I think to explain to people that if you're going to get a lot of money come into the borough, then the, the local council perspective is that we'll have some of that for our own people. Thank you very much. And we will also use it to develop opportunities for local communities. And I think I want to go there um, because you also did you did two things, I think. One is that you were very muscular, to use my word, in terms of your relationship with the private sector, respectful, helpful, but you want your return for the community benefit, so that's your notion of value capture in a sense, right? So that you know, the the other thing though that you managed to do this at a, at, you know at a time when the council that you inherited, I think it's fair to say, was not in great shape, but became prize winning by the time that you and your colleagues had finished their work. How did you do that? And then I want to talk the, about the regional East London stuff to conclude. So tell me, you you moved it from a basket case to something that was prize winning. How did that happen? I, I think it goes back to the point I made earlier that you actually need a respect for the interface between the political process and and the folk who are working in City Hall. 
Uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that it was actually the first local authority in Britain to have three chief executives that were women in succession, all, all of whom were, were, were very strong, all of whom were very robust in making sure that they hired decent planners, decent people in education, decent people in the social services department. And, and so there was there was an issue of trust and reconciling that those forms of expertise to make sure that those services were properly run. And it was never particularly easy. And there were all sorts of issues to do with the, the more seamy side of local government and dodgy contracts and forcing people out. But if you actually have strong people working in the, the political system alongside competent people working in the the, the bureau, the bureaucracy of, of City Hall and respecting their voices, then I think that was that was part of the, the, the story. It's also going back to going back to the point about the, the, the private sector, we could, I, I think um, th there is a lot to be said about the new financial district of Canary Wharf, um, and there's a lot to be said about property developers, but some property developers who will remain um, nameless were kind of nakedly about greed and having a standoff about saying, you know, if you are going to build a, a, a big private block, we would also want here a mix, not just of a kind of complete separation between private housing and social housing, but some of the profit you make should go to towards building new social housing that is decent social housing that is integrated in that private housing. But also other people, including some of the folk at Canary Wharf, were, were always, um, and I say this often, in a sense, neither neither friends nor nor enemies, that they are, they are there to make profit for their shareholders. And so they wanted to maximise quite properly the scale of development that they, they wanted. But also, they recognised in, in that, that some of the folk who were there at the time that they were sitting in an area of great, great tension. So we always said that what we wanted was jobs for local people, not on the, not just on the, the in the in the cleaners and the ground floors, but in every floor of those big new tall buildings. And so, developing schemes that were about employment for people in those 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 new office spaces was important. But also actually trying to make that space more permeable. So you know actually developing a retail offer that actually drew people into the commercial sector. The city of London used to be completely deserted. Um, on a Saturday and Sunday, because there was no commercial offer. If you go to Canary Wharf now on a Saturday and Sunday, it is absolutely flooded with people using the commercial offer. So the the, the, the psychological boundaries between Canary Wharf and its neighbourhood, I, I, I wouldn't understate the reality that is still there, but the but the permeability is much greater there than in the, in the square mile of London. So one thing I wanted to say to people before we go to the regional side of this, the East London side of this, is that... Uh, you weren't just very adept at getting a good deal uh, out of uh, the development process for your people, which you, you were. It, it's also that uh, councils like you provided good, stable, kind of intel in, in, intelligent partnership for the private sector. We came, came to rely on the, you know, the kind of professionalism uh, of the officers and of the council. So it worked both ways. And it was that, that you were actually became a reliable partner for for the you know for a kind of win-win approach. Now this I want to take this to a slightly wider phase and then I then we'll come to an end. We can talk all day, but here we here we go. The um, thing I came away with when I was working for these 12 boroughs and I worked for Tahamath through for a while as well is an immense respect. No no exaggeration for the political uh, sophistication and indeed the kind of managerial sophistication, actually, of of many of the leaders and the top bureaucrats that I met. You know, I came away with an immense respect that I've 
persisted. And I, I still find when I come into Australia that people just don't understand what great local government can do sometimes. They just haven't seen enough of it. And also, they tend to get lent on in Australia by uh, other tiers of government a lot more, as I was used to, a lot more collaborative and indeed feisty kind of, you know, uh, back away to uh, other tiers if we didn't like what they were doing. There was a kind of creative tension between, say, the boroughs and the London mayor as as it emerged, or indeed national government. But it was a a creative thing. And sometimes it actually led to great collaboration, as we saw with some of the things I'm just going to end with. And I think that the cliche of various friends of mine in this urbanist trade is true, which is cities collaborate to compete. So you were very good at creating collaborations, but you also looked horizontally so you looked at the councils around you that you thought that, that you know, spatially it made sense, politically it made sense to, to collaborate with them about joint projects of strategic importance. And, and your colleagues in the area in East London were up for it by uh, in sort of 97, 98, 99. And I think we were very lucky for that there was a kind of moment, new Blair government coming in, creating some new possibilities. And then the Thamesgate with London Partnership, which actually wasn't meant to succeed, but I think, but actually, you know, did. It was never like an urban development corporation. It didn't have powers. It was a voluntary organisation between councils. But I think we probably would never have had the Channel Tunnel railing go through Stratford without the collaboration of the of the Thames Gateway boroughs. We, we would never have had Crossrail going across the river were it not for the collaboration of the boroughs. And I actually am pretty sure that the Olympics wasn't going to go to Stratford without the urban regeneration case that we were making for East London. So what do you think about that kind of regional collaboration stuff in, in cities? I think the simple point that you made, and uh, Tim, I think I, I appreciate the some of the comments you've made, but also you're, you're being unusually um, modest about your own role in all of this, because I, I think what one of the lessons of that time is a universal, which is that small groups with high trust relations between them can achieve much more than large networks with low levels of trust at particular moments. And I think some of it was serendipitous, as you say, in terms of a particular, a particular time. But what what it was possible to do by generating respect about the different forms of expertise was bring together through the public sector, but with the private sector frequently, voices that actually could bang on the door of central government. And as I say, this sometimes in the UK context in particular, general sense of disdain for local government. It may not be as bad as in Australia from what you're, what you're saying, but but there's there was always a, a sense of... You know, I can remember a particularly ignorant senior civil servant coming down to the east end of London. And then what they normally come come and say was, you know, how far is it from here to London, uh, even though you were sitting in, in yes. uh, but also, you know, one civil servant said, Oh, there's been so much regeneration money, we must be near we must admit you near economic takeoff. Peak. I mean it's, it's <laughs> the, the kind of patrician ignorance that is expressed sometimes by these figures who have got very good degrees from very good universities and sit in high levels of civil service is different from those low low level forms of expertise that know the ground on which they're working. And I think it what it also involved was a pragmatism so that when you talk about crossrail or other major infrastructure developments thanks to to yourself and thanks to networking, that some of those local government folk were happy to work with, in that case, the expertise that was Canary Wharf produced. So as you know, we were able to visit the Department of Transport with, and it comes back to the data point from earlier on, we had transport models that were actually commissioned and paid for by Canary Wharf 
to, to for reasons of naked self-interest but that we're also quite helpful if you're going to structure a new city to the east of london in a way that is more egalitarian is more social democratic it, ha- it helps to understand how the transport systems are going to interact with these new demographics that are arriving and they had expertise that was better than the department of transport yeah your point is great though because i think that if cities collaborate to compete it, it, we were in a condition to to collaborate with a big beast in the jungle you know we, yeah. we we might not have been able to do that as like individual kind of but together there was a great force but it was never it, it wasn't subservient tim which is the other point i was going to say is, is because we're also well aware without going into too much chapter in verse is that when we get then get into a planning dispute with exactly the same people we've just been lobbying the treasury and the department of transport with um tim williams might get a phone call from Downing Street saying, what are those bastards in Tower Hamlets doing <laughs> trying to oppose this engine of economic recovery? <laughs> that is all true. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, I mean, recognising that there are no friends and enemies in straightforward sense, but you have high trust relations with people that you can have a row with in, because there is a, there are things that are shared and things that are different. And articulating those demands that small network rather than a massive bureau, which the Thames Gateway, as we know, became became a kind of a massive bureaucratized site. No one really came. It would add it as its peak when we had six people working for it. But I, I um, look, we, I'm going to bring this to an artificial conclusion <laughs> or the end, as we we call it in technical terms. But I wanted to say to you that uh, we should do this again at some point. But the uh, how about this? The uh, so I think I said earlier on there was uh, data, there was uh, information, there was uh, you know knowledge, and then there's wisdom. And I think we've uh, been listening to somebody who has managed to crystallise a lot of data into very good pieces of wisdom for us all to listen to on an international basis. I think secondly, um, it's an inspiration to those people who think that uh, they they should only do one thing in life. You know, you, you definitely have done at least three or four, and I think you've succeeded at most of them. So that's really good. I think the third thing is around this whole collaborative piece. Uh, and the role that local government at its best can play in city shaping. And that, and that uh, I've seen it close up, you've run it close up, and it's a real thing, uh, understudied, under-respected, in, in my view. And we still get academics who don't seem to get it, you know, writing reports about the Olympics as though it's, uh, and its legacy as though it was like an f- easy game, you know, that we failed at or something. And it was a bloody difficult game, and we succeeded at, but it was through the kind of wisdom and networking and strength of kind of advocacy uh, and knowledge of the local areas that these political leaders brought to the table and then they helped shape people above them. And I'm a big believer, I've seen it happen, how cities can change because of this. So I think that you bring, Michael, a real fascinating and rather unique experience of that, that bringing that, that, that wisdom together with that experience. So can I thank you from an Australian perspective for that, but also internationally, I think it's been very interesting. It's, there's some great local government leaders here and some great councils here, um, but they will all be inspired by what we just heard from you. So thank you very much, Michael. Thank you, Tim. I think there's an, an, the need for capacity growth in the UK now is as strong as elsewhere in the wake of things. So we shouldn't be too nostalgic about the past, given <laughs> that we should recognise the power of what was done and the challenges now for the future. Well said. Thank you, Michael. You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.